Join me in Ephesians chapter one. We're gonna start this morning in verse seven. And the title of the message today is The Father's Grand Plan in His Son. We've been talking about this, this prepositional phrase that you know, honestly, if you just gloss over it, you're not gonna notice it. In Christ, in Him, in whom, in Himself. But it's littered in Ephesians chapter one. And we're gonna see that God the Father had a grand plan. And it's all centered in his son. In fact, the summary verse of the section this morning is in verse 10. So let's just jump ahead. I'm going to read it. He says that in the dispensation, the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. And so we see that God had a grand plan. He accomplished it in his son. This is very important to see. We don't want to just kind of make this statement lightly, but, but the way God gets salvation done, we read about that, we hear about it in the history of the world, that, that God wants to save mankind, that God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. That's all true. But what oftentimes we overlook is that the way God did it, his plan was pure genius. We're going to see that this morning. Because that plan is found in his son, as we come out of verse six, he called him by a name. Remember that name? The beloved one. The unconditionally loved one of God. That means as we sit here today, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you are unified with a person who in God's estimation is always going to be loved, never rejected, can never fall out of his favor. And you say, man, how did I get into the good of that? Only by his grace. Only by his grace you got into the good of that. This is God's plan. And so this morning as we go forward, we want to continue to look at our spiritual bank account. Remember, we're still in the same sentence. <laughs> that, that just blows me away. We're in verse seven. We're still in the same sentence that started in verse three. And that sentence doesn't end until verse 14. Longest run-on sentence probably in the history of the Greek language. We're still in the middle of that sentence and so we want to continue looking at our spiritual bank account this morning. We want to continue to consider the blessings that we already possess. And so as, as they say in our day, we, we are literally going to count your Benjamins this morning. We're just going to keep rolling through your $100 spiritual bills in terms of what you possess as a believer in Jesus Christ. And you know, one of the things that you possess is redemption. Let's read that, verse 7 and verse 8. Let's read both. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound to us, toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And so those of you might've remembered, you know, since last week, although we've all slept a couple times since last week. So let me just, in terms of reminding, you know, Paul took in verse six, if you remember that, that phrase, he made us accepted. That's, that's what my version says. That's the translation. Remember, Paul actually turned grace into a verb there. He graced us. And it's like, he, he just jammed verse six with, with grace, 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 grace. He just jammed it all together. But he turns it into a verb. He graced us in the beloved. And what we're gonna see in this verse is this is one of the things that God the Father graced you with by placing you in Jesus Christ. And it's this concept of redemption. Hold your finger there. We're coming right back. I gotta show you something. Because this really ties, I think, everything in this morning. And I, I hate to give away spoiler alerts too early, but sometimes I just do because I'm just so excited. I don't, know when, I don't know when to bring it up. So I just bring it up at the beginning. So hopefully, 
If, if you tune out at some point in the sermon, you're, you'll, something will resonate with you when you go home. So 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, and I'll let you, I, I hear pages flipping and fingers tapping, so I'll give you a second. But 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him, God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. You're going to start seeing that, I hope, you're going to start seeing that prepositional phrase everywhere you read the Bible because it's there. This is God's grand plan to place believers in Christ. So of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God is the one who placed you in Christ. Now, I want you to notice the way he verbalizes the the rest of the verse. Who, Jesus, became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. And then there's our, our word, redemption. I simply point this out because oftentimes we think of these phrases wisdom, sanctification, redemption, righteousness as something that God gives to us. That's true. Those are things that God gives to us. But I want you to see the connection to a person. See a connection to a person. Look at verse 30, verse 30 again. Who became for us wisdom from God? You see, when you get wisdom from God, you get Jesus Christ. When you get righteousness from God, you get Jesus Christ. When you get redemption from God, you get Jesus Christ. And that's why when people say, oh yeah, the the gift of eternal life, Jesus Christ is eternal life. We've been unified with Jesus Christ. We have eternal life because we are unified with him. This is God's grand plan. And this is why when people say you can have eternal life, but you can lose it, they are missing the connection to a person. And my person that I'm connected to is highly beloved of God, can never be rejected by God. And thus, guess what? I can never be rejected by God. It's connected to a person. This is what we've got to see as we're flowing through Ephesians chapter one. Jesus Christ didn't just give us redemption. He is redemption. Jesus Christ didn't just give us sanctification. He is sanctification. Jesus Christ didn't just give us his righteousness. He is our righteousness. Now I said, we're going back to Ephesians one, but on your way, go to second Corinthians five. And I better move it because I wasn't planning on saying this much. So first, second Corinthians five, but I, but I want you to see this second Corinthians five 21. Notice how it's worded in second Corinthians five 21 for he made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In him. You see the, the, the connection to this union with Jesus Christ. That's why you can be secure. This is God's grand plan to secure all the blessings he's ever promised to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. God the Father has now unified you with him. You're in Christ. Praise God. You cannot be in a better position than what you already possess as a believer. In fact, look at the first verb going back to Ephesians 1 now. It says, we have. You have. You presently possess redemption. You continually possess redemption. This is a present possession of yours. You've already got it as a believer. You don't have to work toward redemption. You don't have to hope that you'll be redeemed one day. You can know that you have redemption. In fact, when we look at the word redemption, it's a really interesting word. A whole sermon can be devoted to this, but let's try to just make a couple lines. It means to let someone go free for a ransom. That's very key. 
A ransom had to be paid in order to set us free. And the text tells us what the ransom was. Look at verse 7. We have redemption how? Through his blood. The death of Jesus Christ paid your ransom in order to set you free. And this is an interesting concept in the Roman Empire. There were 6 million slaves, by some estimates, in the Roman Empire at this time, bought and sold like pieces of furniture, run around like cattle at different auctions. And occasionally, a man would buy a slave in the slave market, take him outside of the slave market, and unshackle him and say, you're free. You're free to go. Occasionally, that would happen. That was called redemption. That's exactly what you possess as a believer of Jesus Christ. Never to go to the slave market of sin, never to have to face the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. You don't have to face death ever. Why? Because your substitute died in your place for you so that you would never have to face that penalty. And we go to verses like John 3.16 and everyone, you know, people, you quote John 3.16 and many, many, many believers even just roll their eyes. God, give me something new. Why give you something new when it's awesome? Like, when does awesome stop being awesome? I I don't know. It doesn't stop being awesome to me. But John 3, 16, the most basic of verses that we hear as a kid that we learn in Awana, we learn in Sunday school. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, notice the first promise, shall not perish. You don't have to face the death penalty. You never have to face the death penalty. Why? Because Jesus took your justice for you so that you would never have to face it. That's what we're talking about, redemption. He paid that ransom price. He paid the exact price needed to free us from sin's penalty. You'll notice that all throughout the Old Testament, you know, what, was, what pointed forward to what Jesus would do was animal sacrifices. Now, where do you find in the Old Testament? Did, did a guy just bring a lamb up to the temple and say, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just go ahead and strangle this. Someone put him in the sleeper hold and strangle him. Is that how people killed a lamb? In the Old Testament, some of you may not know. I mean, we, <laughs> we obviously don't do that today. But no, it wasn't through strangulation. It wasn't through banging a lamb in the head. It wasn't through bashing their head. What was it through? It was a knife to the neck. Jugular vein, blood spilt. There were things that they did with that blood. They drained the animal of the blood. And you think, that is disgusting and gross. Yet when you see it from the view of God, you say, This is incredible because he says the life is in the blood. In order to pay the death penalty for a guilty sinner, the the lamb had to shed blood. That's why Hebrews 9.22 goes on to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood. And so what we have here is you have redemption through his blood. In other words, he paid the full Penalty for you, the penalty required by the law, the penalty required by the wrath of God, Jesus Christ did it for you. This is why he didn't just have an aneurysm and die. This is why a Roman soldier didn't get him around the neck and strangle him and he died. This is why in John 8, as he upsets the religious leaders of the day, they pick up stones to stone him and something wouldn't let their arm go because he couldn't die by stoning. He needed to die in the way that he died as predicted in the Old Testament, shedding blood to pay that ransom price. And so, you know what? As a believer in Jesus Christ, this is one of your Benjamins. This is one of your $100 bills in your spiritual bank account. You have redemption. 
It's yours. You presently possess it. You know what else comes with redemption? Look at the next phrase, the forgiveness of sins. That means you'll never have to change a diaper. No, I'm just kidding. Totally joking. This picture, though, gives me a visual image to remember what forgiveness means because forgiveness is an interesting word. It means to cause to stand away from. It means to release something from someone. It means to to hold at a distance or to move away from. Now you know why I've got stinky diaper. Anyone that's ever changed a stinky diaper knows that you don't typically hold it in like the baby. I mean, you're holding it out until you get it to the trash, right? This is what forgiveness means. And notice that in Christ, and this is so important, please, please hear this. Um, We try to emphasize this a lot here. And and yet in our religious culture, there's so much confusion on this point. And let me just say it this way. You have forgiveness of sins the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something you have to continually ask for. It's something you presently possess. In fact, I would challenge you to find anywhere in the scriptures where we are taught to ask for forgiveness of sins. I challenge you. Find it. Let's have lunch. My treat. If you can find it, I'll treat you to lunch. I'll treat you to breakfast because it's not there. We, you don't get forgiveness of sins by asking God for something. I'll tell you what, how you get forgiveness of sins. God has already done something. 2,000 years ago to provide you with forgiveness of sins, all he wants you to do is believe on his solution and you get forgiveness of sins. That's how you get it. You don't get it by asking. You know, I was talking to a, a young man years ago and I won't, he grew up in church and I won't even tell what denomination, that's neither here nor there. He grew up in church and I said, what does God require of somebody to go to heaven? He said, I gotta, you gotta ask for forgiveness. I said, okay. I said, one time, he's, and this is where the misunderstanding started coming in. You just ask for forgiveness one time? Oh, no, 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 no. Every time you sin. So he had told me minutes earlier that he was 100% sure he was going to heaven. I said, okay, well, let me, let me paint a scenario here. Let's say that you, um, you're leaving the place where we're talking right now. You uh, fall into sin. You do something sinful. You make a mistake. You're on your way home. You die in a car accident and you get home. Because I had asked him earlier, well, when do you ask God for forgiveness? He's like, before bed, every night before bed. I said, well, basically I'm painting the scenario. So what happens if you get home, you don't make it home, you've clearly sinned and you don't have time to ask for forgiveness. Where will you spend eternity? He said, he looked at me and he said, I guess I'll go to hell. That's the tragedy of having a gospel response that's unclear. That's the tragedy of using religious cliches that have no biblical basis. It's not like we're the semantic police. I mean, just listen to how I talk. You know, I'm not a semantic police. I mean, I don't even talk right. I barely know English, you know. I mean, people might even think it's my second language, but we're not about semantics. We're about the truth. And the truth of the matter is you don't have to beg God to get forgiveness of sins. He wants to give them to you. He wants to distance your sin from you. In fact, he wanted it so much that he gave up the most precious prize of heaven and sent him to the cross so that he could provide it for you. And all we have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what does verse seven in chapter one of Ephesians say? You have it. It's yours. We don't have to continue to ask God for forgiveness. Now, how could God provide this for us? Well, look at what he goes on to say in verse seven. It's according to 
the riches of his grace. You know, this is one of the things that we need to understand about grace. The depth of God's grace is absolutely limitless. It's described here as, as riches. That means you can never exhaust it. That means you can never outrun it. That means you can never use it all up. We're going to see even how he verbalizes this as we go forward, even in this morning's passage. But, you know, one of the things about grace is you've got to understand, we've all got to understand this. You didn't deserve it in the past. You don't deserve it today. And you'll never deserve it in the future. Because by definition, grace is undeserved. So if you have to do something to maintain your gracious standing before God, or you have to stop doing something to maintain your gracious standing before God, it was never grace to begin with. We understand this. Like, uh, literally, if I give my kids a Christmas gift and I say, it's a gift, here's your bicycle, and then I send them an invoice when they're 30 years old for that bicycle, I don't care. if You could say it was a gift for 30 years. No, it was never a gift. Because one day they were going to have to pay for it. One day they were going to have to earn it and do something for it. Thus, it disqualified that from ever being a gift. And so grace is this way. And I want to point out something. It's just an observation point, but I think it's so rich. At least it has been for me. Notice, too, in verse 7 that the text reads, according to the riches of his grace and not merely out of. I want you to see that in your text and you're like, what's the difference? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Here's the difference. Let me tell, use it as an illustration. You know, one of the, the things I used to do as a young man, if I was going out, I was going out with friends, I was going to watch a movie, I was going to go do this. Every one of you know, what do you do? Well, you go to dad because dad's got the fat wallet usually. I remember my dad used to always joke with me as a kid. I believed him. He's like, hey, we're going to go to the free $20 bill machine. And I was like, wow. I want a card for that machine. And you just get free $20 bills. This is what I'm thinking as a young boy. He's, that's what he called the ATM machine. And there were times in the month where he would, he would pull out a wad of 20s and he would put it in his wallet just like this. And I remember my dad, I'd say, hey, I'm going to the movies. I'm going out with my friends. My dad, he'd say, you need some money? I said, yeah. And he would pull out, of course, I'm a lot different than my dad. So pull out his, his wallet and I would see this stack of $20 bills. And you know what he would do? He would just take one $20 bill out out of his wealth and give it to me. If he would have given me according to his wealth, what would he have taken out? The whole stack. Here you go. See, that's the difference between according to and out of. And you see this in verse seven. This is is how God rolls, if you will. And what's so interesting is look at how he follows it up in verse eight. We'll kind of get there. It's almost like he feels... Paul knows what he's saying. He knows it's true, but he almost knows how people are going to respond because then in verse 8 he says, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The, The thing is, is he brings that in. Why does he bring that in? Because I think he's thinking these people are going to think they've got a blank check from God and that is not a good thing. Like that could be absolutely reckless, you know, to, to think that God just gives blank checks to people. I mean, you know yourself, you know people in your life, that would be a dangerous thing if we wrote or gave blank checks. And and so when he says made abound here, another just fascinating word, you know, Paul is just, I love the words he uses because they just have so much energy and expression. But this word in verse eight that he made abound means he literally 
it was in excess. It exceeded in number and measure. There are leftovers. There's so much. It's kind of the idea. They say it. He, his grace, he's, his, the riches of his grace are so limitless that they're always going to be leftovers. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Don't you love meals when there are leftovers? That's always a good feeling when you're like, oh, I got lunch tomorrow. <laughs> I got dinner tomorrow too. You know, I got, I got a lot of leftovers. This is the grace of God. So much that there's leftovers. You can never outrun it. You can never outuse it. You can never uh, uh, abuse it so much that you lose it. By definition, that's, that's grace. So it's really fascinating here because if you and I were to give someone a blank check, like I said, it would look very reckless. It would be very irresponsible. You know, anybody that's ever had a teenager, if, if you were to just give them a blank check, I mean, what would your friends tell you? Like, don't ever do that. <laughs> that's reckless. That's irresponsible. How, how do you know that they're not going to abuse it? How do you know they're not going to just clean you out, Right? But notice how God did it. This is, this is just incredible about the way God did it. It says that he did it, how? In all wisdom and prudence. Wisdom means skillfully applied knowledge. That means God had full knowledge of what he was doing, but he skillfully applied that knowledge to this situation. And then he says in all prudence, and I love this word too, because it means that he had good judgment as it relates to dealing with one's own resources. In other words, Blank check for you, blank check for you, blank check for you, blank check to every believer that's ever existed can still never run out God's resources. Wow. You know what? God knew that. And I'll tell you why he knew it, because what he was going to do, according to his grand plan, is he was going to do everything as it relates to the riches you possess in Jesus Christ, be, make it based on the fact that you're in Jesus Christ. You're in union with Jesus Christ. This is how God knows. He's not scared that you're going to blow out his resources and the next person that trusts in Christ is going to be like, oh man, I don't have any spiritual resources in my bank account. We can never outdo God's grace. That's what's so incredible. And God knew this. And so it, it may not make complete sense to us on the surface. It may even seem reckless to some but, but God didn't just do this to win friends and influence people. You know, it's like the typical middle school person that's running for president, right? They're always going to get Coke more Coke machines in the, in the cafeteria. You know, they're, they're making promises they can't keep to try to get votes. God's not a politician. He knows what his resources are. He knows them better than us. And he says, you know what? It's okay. So-and-so, you got a blank check. It's okay. You're never going to outspend my resources. You're never going to outuse my resources in Jesus Christ. And you know, this means that God's plan, this grand plan to redeem mankind was pure genius. This is what we want to take away from this. God is pure genius in the way that he accomplished your salvation. And it's something as Paul, as I've said before, there's no command in chapter one. He's not telling you to do anything. He's just telling you to sit and listen, sit and enjoy your God and what he accomplished for you. Sit and enjoy and bask in who he is and the resources that he's provided and the fact that you have this limitless access to his grace. I mean, it just, it just is a mind-blown type situation. Now, one of the things we're gonna see as we move to verse nine is that God let us in on this information. He didn't just do this in secret. Now he wants you to know about it because it has this uh, ability, if you know about it, it can impact the way that you think. 
It can impact the way that you live. It can impact the way that you divert your resources as you live life on this earth. And hopefully it's in the same heart and mind as 2 Corinthians 5 that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who died for us and rose again. That's 2 Corinthians 5. And hopefully it just shifts our thinking toward that type of attitude and mindset. Let's look at verses nine through 10. He says, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth um, in him. And you know, he says that he has, having made known to us the mystery of his will. And so in, in God's wisdom and prudence, again, kind of coming out of chat, uh, verse eight, he, he made known or he, de- he decreed something to us. Uh, this is part of how he's lavishing his grace on us. He's bringing us into the know on something. What was it? Well, the text tells us it was the mystery of his will. That's what he brought us into the know on. The word mystery, interesting, used oftentimes in the New Testament. Uh, it does not refer to something spooky or scary. You know, this isn't the mystery van, you know, Scooby-Doo kind of thing. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about something that's revealed now that was not revealed before, okay? Something that's been uncovered now that may have been hidden before. And so God is revealing something to us in this day and age when Paul was writing this and for us as well, that was not revealed before in the Old Testament, okay? Specifically, as specifically as we can get. And God let us in on this information for a reason. What was that reason? Well, he tells us it was done one of the reasons, according to his good pleasure. He, he wanted you to know. He didn't want to just, it's not like the internet in our day where you get so loaded with information that means nothing. Somehow I get, I get caught on people's forwarded emails a lot. I'm just like, this is, some of this stuff I'm interested in, some of it, some of it I'm not, you know? But you, you, we have more information in our day than we know how to even process. Let's be honest. I mean, it's overwhelming sometimes. But this was a bit of information God wanted you to know. He wants you to understand. He wants me to understand because it can have an impact in the way that we live and the way that we think. And notice that it was his good pleasure, his gracious purpose, which he purposed in himself, or better stated there, he purposed in Christ. You can actually make an argument that that's a better translation there, that he purposed in Christ. And it goes with our context really well. And so he purposed with Christ. And so this word purpose, as we look at it further, it's a compound word. It means to set before someone, to set forth or before the eyes or to design beforehand. Now that goes exactly with what we looked at last week in verse four, right? What did we look at last week? Well, it says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It means that God already had this plan in place before the foundation of the world, how he was going to do it, how he was going to pull it off. He just didn't tell everybody about it in Genesis chapter three. He didn't tell everybody about it in Genesis chapter 12. He didn't tell everybody about it when they entered the promised land with Joshua. He didn't tell everybody about it until Paul's day, the apostles day. This is when he revealed this truth that what he was going to do how he was going to do it. And so God had this plan designed before the foundation of the world, and that plan was to be executed in Jesus Christ. And you know what? 
he's revealed it to us. He's led us into the know of that. And he did that according to the good pleasure uh, of his will, of, according to the purpose which he purposed in himself. Now, what specifically was God's mystery? Uh, it's like we got one word we're defining, and then we, we follow it up with a huge, like, $5 word, dispensation. And you're like, whoa, how do I fit all this together? So we try to do it slow, but, th- but this is specifically what he revealed, okay? This is the mystery that he made known. That, and here it is, that in the dispensation of the fullness of, of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. At just the right time in human history, this is kind of, I think, trying to just overly summarize this term. At just the right time in human history, God sent forth his son to do what only he could do. There, there was a time set aside in history, a perfect time where Jesus Christ would solve the sin problem for all of mankind once and for all. You know, Galatians 4.4, 4, we're, we're right there. Let me just read it. It says, and notice some of the concepts in Galatians 4 that we've already looked at in Ephesians 1. That's kind of this connection. But, but when the fullness of time had come, so we see that, that, that phrase, fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Notice the concept, verse 5, of redemption, to redeem those who are under the law. And then notice that next phrase, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And we looked at adoption last week. So you see how all of this is coming together. But at the exact point in human history, God sent Jesus Christ to do what only he could do. He, you know, dispensation is just a a big $5 word that means house rules, the the administering of house rule. Some of of us in the older generation, I guess I'm including myself now on that because at least I've used this phrase, right? What happens when you went to a store the day before the COVID hysteria hit? You could go to the store, no mask. Oftentimes the day after COVID hit, what happened? a mask. And, and you see, we were no longer under the dispensation of no mask. Okay. It doesn't, doesn't even have to have a religious undertone. It just means that the, that the rules have changed. The administration of how they wanted to accomplish their business has changed. When I was going to the gym again, when I started getting back into the gym, the first, first couple of times I went in, I scanned my card. They took my temperature. Allegedly, if my temperature was above a certain amount, they would kick you out or not let you in. Although I never, I've never seen anyone not loud in. But that's a whole other story. Take my temperature. Then I went in one day and they said, no more temperature checks. Just scan your card and go in. The dispensation had changed. The house rules, the way they were administering their business had changed. And what we're saying is that at a, at a point in time in history, God introduced his son and he changed or he administered the house rules differently. And that's the day and age that we live in. It's called the church age. And, and so just the right time of human history, God did this. And what it did is this plan allowed God to do something. The plan that he had in his mind before the foundation of the world, now he could execute it. He'd been foreshadowing this plan for all of human history through the law. How had he been foreshadowing it? Well, quite simply, the law revealed God's holiness. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. The the law revealed God's holiness. It revealed his righteousness. And it, it revealed his just demands. Because no sin could be forgiven or covered or atoned for without what? The shedding of blood. There was always this concept that, that when I sinned, 
I deserved justice. I deserved God's justice. But God was willing to take an innocent animal and kill that innocent animal in my place. Thus, I didn't have to face the death penalty, but the death penalty was still faced by somebody. In fact, when you look at the story of the exodus out of Egypt, what is so fascinating about that story, when you think about every home in Egypt that night, there was one death at every home, one death. Death had to hit every single home. But in the house of the Israelite who trusted God's solution, it was the death of the lamb, not the death of the firstborn. And every Israelite that didn't trust God's solution, there was still a death in their home. If they said, I'm not killing that lamb, I love that lamb. They would have lost their firstborn that night. All the Egyptians who didn't have that revelation, they lost their firstborn. There was one death in every home. And you know, God foreshadowed this in his plan. Death is a consequence from sin. There's no way of getting out of death. Death has to be paid. That's another reason why asking God for forgiveness doesn't work because you're asking God to sidestep the justice that his law demands. Because you don't even realize that you have a substitute that died for you. You think God can just dole out forgiveness to anybody he wants. No, is Jesus Christ's death counted to your account? Only happens when you put your faith in him. And so it's very important to see that God's solution was in Christ. He was foreshadowing this. Through animal sacrifices, God revealed again that he would enforce the consequences for sin. But he would lovingly allow a substitute to face that penalty. You didn't have to face it yourself. God even foreshadowed that in the animal sacrificial system. And so the guilty person was encouraged to do what? Stop sinning? Was that how they got saved? No. They were to trust the Lord by trusting in God's solution for sin's penalty and not their own. And ultimately they knew from Genesis 3.15 that God God would one day send a deliverer who would completely take care of the sin problem. His name is Jesus Christ. And he came at the exact moment in human history to execute God's grand plan for people. Now you'll see in verse 10, you've got this phrase there at the end that in Jesus Christ, God, it says he might gather together in one all things in Christ. It's, this phrase is a mathematical formula. It has the idea of summing up the whole. In other words, if I could simplify it, how's God going to save you? How did God save Abraham? How did God save Abel? How did God save Noah? How is God going to save your descendants? How is God going to save people in the future, right? This, this oftentimes... Uh, it confuses people. And you know, the Bible, the good news about the Bible, God had one plan. Everyone gets saved the exact same way. There's not multiple ways of salvation. Many people think the Old Testament saints that they got saved by trying to keep the law. It's not how they got saved. They got saved one way, faith in God's solution for sin. His name is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is how God would bring all of this together, sum it up into one. Jesus Christ was actually the mechanism. It wasn't the method. It wasn't the process. It was a person. That's what we've got to see. This is God's grand plan. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Anyone who would put their faith in God's solution, they would be saved the same way. This is how God is bringing it all together in one plan. He would place those individuals in union with his son, and this is how he accomplished it. And by the way, every saved person in human history has their sins paid for the same way. The same exact way Jesus 
made that payment for them. This is why in Romans 3, it says that, that God, overlooking their sins in the present, knew that Jesus would come and pay for those sins in full. And we talked about that when we went through Romans, that many of those people, we say basically were saved on credit because God knew the day that that final bill would be paid when Jesus Christ cried out from the cross, it is finished. It's been paid in full. This is the incredible thing about God's plan. He knew what he was doing. He knew he was gonna do it in Jesus Christ. He knew the resources he had. He knew what he could accomplish there. And guess what? Jesus did it. Jesus pulled it off. Jesus did exactly what the father wanted him to do. Jesus paid it all. And we know that God the father accepted his sacrifice. How do we know that? God, God the Father accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. If you're sitting here today or you're listening today and you don't know whether or not you're going to heaven, you can know right now. God the Father accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice on your behalf so that you will never have to face the death penalty. How can I be so confident? Because he raised him from the dead. He did something to prove and persuade to you that you can trust in Jesus Christ alone. Stop trusting in your religion. Stop trusting in your rituals. Stop trusting in your own goodness. Stop trusting in the fact that you cuss less now than you did before and you drink less now than you did before. None of that matters to a hill of beans because the question on that day, and First John puts it perfectly, John the apostle, very close to Jesus Christ, he puts it perfectly and he says it this way, he who has the son, has life. He who does not have the son does not have life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. You see, it goes back to our passage in Ephesians. Salvation is found in a person. Your spiritual blessings are found in a person. This was God's grand plan to put you in a person who could never falter, fail, or be rejected by God. See, God's plan is incredible. It's pure, it's pure genius. So when will this dispensation be fully realized? In other words, when will the house rule actually look like everything together in one? In fact, you look at our culture today, you're like, man, it's out of control. <laughs> this clearly hasn't happened yet, that where Jesus Christ is over everything. He, he's brought together everything in one. When is this going to look that way? And you know, I believe it's gonna look that way during the millennial kingdom, beginning at Jesus Christ's second coming. I think this is exactly where God is going to bring this all together. But to, to make a distinction, the kingdom is not the mystery. To be a mystery means it wasn't talked about in the Old Testament. The kingdom's clearly talked about in the Old Testament, everywhere. Everywhere the kingdom's talked about in the Old Testament. Every Jew is, is thinking, how do I get into the kingdom? This is why when Jesus is talking to a religious Jew in his day, in John 3, Nicodemus, what does he say to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you must be born again to what? to see the kingdom of God. He's, he's meeting him where he is because that's the mindset of the Jew is how do I get into the kingdom? Here's the mystery. Here's the mystery. It's the way that God would go about executing, bringing everything together. It's the way that he would go about doing this. The kingdom wasn't the mystery. They knew God was going to reign. How would he do it though? That's what hadn't been revealed. And it was gonna be in Christ. It was gonna be based on the finished work of his son. And so salvation in Christ, if you will, is the mechanism, if you will. I, I hate to even use that word about a person. It's how God is going to accomplish all this. It's how God is so confident in the resources that he has and what Christ accomplished to make these incredible promises that look like blank checks. You're like, that's reckless, God. You can't do that. People are going to take advantage of it. 
Trust me, God knows. God's got it all under control. He's, he's okay with this. This is what he decided to do. And you know what's so fascinating? We don't have time. I, I put it up there so you have time. Revelation 5. I love Revelation 5 because it, it, it puts into perspective the way that people think when they get to heaven. And I love it. I love it. Because in Revelation 5, you know, you know the story. John approaches, he's brought into a heavenly scene, into the throne room of God. And God the Father has got a scroll. And John says, who's, who's worthy to open the scroll? And, and he's like, there's no one worthy. He begins to cry. It's to weep. There's no one worthy to open this scroll. And then out of nowhere, a lamb appears. And he walks up with confidence and he takes that scroll. And I believe that that scroll is a title deed to this earth because I believe that's something that mankind in the fall usurped and gave to Satan. In the sense, that's why Satan is, is now the ruler of this world or known as the God of this age, the God of this world. And on that day in human history, in the future, in Revelation 5, Jesus Christ is going to take that scroll back and he's going to slap it down because this thing belongs to him. And that's what's going to happen. He's going to start scratching open the seals and there's going to be judgment poured out on this earth. And then when it's all said and done, he's going to come back and take control. And I, I look forward to that day. I long for that day. But I will tell you something this, that when people are thinking biblically in Revelation chapter five, when he takes the scroll, you know what they say? You are worthy to take the scroll. Why? Because you were slain. You're the one who died for me. See, the mindset's gonna be on the gospel in heaven. We're gonna be excited about what Jesus Christ did. It's not gonna be like, quit telling me the gospel. Tell me something new that many people in Christendom do. Oh, I already got the gospel down. Give me something practical. I already got this down. You know what? If you're bored on it now, get ready because you're about to have an eternity where that's all you're gonna think about. And you know what? You're gonna love it. We're gonna love it. We're gonna see him. And we're gonna say, man, you're the one. You are the one worthy. You're the only one worthy. You're the one that was slain for me. And that's gonna be the mindset in our life. And the finished work of Christ is gonna be preeminent in our thinking, hopefully off the charts from where it's ever been here. And we're gonna actually enjoy Jesus Christ in his fullness, everything that he is. And you know, this is what God the Father put together in his plan. It is a great plan. It is a perfect plan. And we wanna just kind of soak and rest in this. You know, verse 11 tells us this, that we have an inheritance in him. Again, notice position. Also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, notice this word also. It's kind of got that feeling of, hey, but wait, there's more. You know, if it's not enough of what we've seen, there's, there's more here. And he says that you've obtained an inheritance. Interesting word because it means to cast lots, but it's passive voice. You haven't cast lots. God's casted that lot for you to give you a portion of what Jesus Christ has inherited. And he's done that by placing you in Christ. It's just, a, just an incredible idea. Also notice that it's an aorist tense, which is just a Greek tense that emphasizes a past completed event, at least here in this verse. It's a past completed event. And so the point is this, will you have an inheritance as a believer? And you know, many believers will say, I don't know. I guess it just depends on how, how, how straight I fly and how well I do. The Bible says you got it. You possess it. It's yours. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 tells you, tells you what? That you have an inheritance. It's reserved in heaven for you 
on the basis of Jesus Christ. So you've got an inheritance. It's yours. You possess it. And God is the one who provided it for you. So again, in in direct connection with verse 10, which just communicates that all things will be gathered in Christ, this phrase goes on to say that we're going to have a portion of what he has to. We will be heirs. That's part of your adoption. In fact, that's why I believe he brings out this word again, predestined, which went back to verse five. We talked about that last week. Remember, we talked about adoption was, was an inheritance term. That's how uh, a Roman father conferred an inheritance upon his own biological child was through the process of adoption. And all this says is that God predetermined that those he would place in Christ would have an inheritance. God's determined that for you. So you have it. If you're, Je- you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that and it's yours. Let's close here with verse 12. Interesting shift. I want you to notice the pronouns here. Let's read verse 12. It says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And then notice in verse 13, in him, you also trusted after you heard. Notice that, see the, the we and the you, he's, he's kind of addressing two groups here. We'll talk more about that um, here next, uh, next time as well. But um, understand that what he's talking about here, this phrase, those who first trusted in Christ. In fact, if you have a different version than New King James or King James, you're going to have the word hope there. That's actually a better translation. Those who hoped before or something like that, because uh, it uses the Greek word elpizo, which is the Greek word for that we translate hope. And, and remember, hope in the Bible, that it does, it's used differently in the way we use it in our modern vernacular because we use it which way? We say, well, we hope, we wish, we're not sure, but maybe this will happen. Hope is not used that way biblically. Hope is confident expectation of something in the future. And so what he's describing here is, is a group of people who had, who had this confident expectation of something that was going to happen in the future. And so there, he's either talking about Jewish believers who, who were hoping beforehand in this coming Messiah, or he's referring to believers in general, those who had trusted in Christ before Paul got to Ephesus. It could have been Jew or Gentile. I kind of lean more toward Jewish believers. And, and I'll tell you, I, but I could be convinced of the other. I'm not really strong. I just kind of lean that way a little bit. But if it's Jewish, Jewish believers in, in Jerusalem, understand they were taking into account these prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And they were clearly looking forward with confident expectation. You can even see that in the temple when Jesus is brought in, right? Simeon and Anna, they were two people who were looking forward, hoping to see the, the promised deliverer. And they were looking for his coming. They're looking for the work that he would accomplish. And you know, when Jesus arrived on the scene, they began to see these miracles. They began to see how he was doing things that the Old Testament scriptures said that the Messiah would do. And they began to see uh, his teaching. They said, you know what? This is him. This is the one we've hoped for. This is the one that we had confidence in. There's another reason I think he's talking about Jews here. Let me just finish this point though. Others will say it's Jewish and Gentile believers that believed before the Ephesian believers because there were missionary journeys to the Galatians and the Macedonians and the Grecians and the Corinthians and you know, all, all up and down these areas before Paul got to Ephesus. And so he makes a distinction here. And I think he makes a distinction for a reason. Because go back to verse, and we'll see this drawn out more as we get into chapter two and three, but go to verse 11. He, he is, he is using we, and I believe he's including everybody there, every believer, like us included today. 
We have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of the world. Saying that, counsel of his will, saying that we have an inheritance that's been predetermined by God that we will have. And you know what makes it even more amazing? Is that that's also true of Gentiles. Because he, verse 12, he says, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And then he says, and you. (laughs) And he brings that in because this is gonna be a major point. We get into chapter two and chapter three. The amazing thing also that God accomplished in Christ was he took Jew and Gentile and he put them into one body. And so we'll look more next week about how the Holy Spirit uh, and his work is also guaranteeing God's blessings and making sure that God's plan is brought home. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you uh, for your word. May you just take these truths, make them real to us, make them practical to us. May we see how uh, these things are designed to impact the way we think and the way we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.